When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, everybody. I know the backdrop's different this time, but you're in the right spot. This is still Unshaken. I'm still Jared Halverson. This just happens to be a home edition for this week, since that's where I'm filming from. Over the Thanksgiving break, a bunch of my family members, including me, came down with COVID-19. So I didn't want to contaminate the Institute, and so I'm filming from here today. Uh, that means we have even lower production values than usual. Uh, the camera that I use at, at the Institute is slightly better than the one that's built into this laptop. I hope it's okay. Thankfully, I know that most of you wonderful, unshaken viewers uh, watch this channel with a certain degree of 1 Samuel 16, 7 uh, behind you. In other words, you look beyond the outward appearance and try to focus on the heart. And I hope that the heart will come through today. I'm not feeling 100%, uh, but I am grateful that I'm making progress through this COVID thing. Uh, if any of you have had it, uh, my heart goes out to you. It's, it's a bear, but I am grateful for rest and the chance to get better. And, and I've learned some interesting things. The timing couldn't have been better, to be honest, uh, over this Thanksgiving break. I to be able to be home with my family and rest and try to get better. But I still had my taste buds on Thanksgiving Day, which was more than my wife could say. Uh, so I'm glad I could at least enjoy one round of the meal. Uh, and it actually uh, did me well because by the time uh, it was leftovers, my taste buds were gone and so none of it was tempting anymore. I was eating some pumpkin pie the day after Thanksgiving and I thought halfway through a bite, what am I doing? I can't taste any of this. I'm getting no joy out of it, so why the empty calories? And with that in mind, it was so easy to resist the temptation. It actually made me think, uh, about resisting temptation in general and realizing that as the Lord changes us, as we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually, to borrow the phrase from King Benjamin's people, our taste buds change. And the things that used to be so appealing to us no longer are. And it's so much easier to resist a temptation when it's no longer tempting. Uh, it, Elder, ben, Elder Bednar has taught this. So much of t resisting temptation is not, you know, fl uh, flexing our muscles or gritting our teeth or clenching our fists. It's yielding to the Holy Ghost. It's becoming a new person, putting off the natural man and becoming a saint through the atonement of Jesus Christ. The flip side has also been interesting because not only have I not wanted to eat the things that don't do me any good, but I haven't really had much interest in eating the things that would do me good. Some kind people in our ward have brought food over, and very healthy stuff, the kind we need. And yet it hasn't been very tantalizing because I can't taste any of it. And yet I know my body needs those nutrients. And so in spite of the fact that nothing is happening in my mouth, I know good things are happening in the rest of my body. And that's taught me an important principle as well. A lot of the people that I work with one-on-one -on -one who are struggling with faith, for whatever reason, have a difficult time feeling the Holy Ghost. Elder Renlund taught an incredible thing based on his background as a cardiologist. 
and studying the cells that which have receptor sites some way but whereby outside things can come into a cell unless of course those receptor sites are blocked and he talked about receptor sites spiritually speaking for the love of God for the spirit and said that sometimes those are blocked sometimes by things that we do namely sin and sometimes by things that we haven't had anything to do with namely mental illness and those that I've worked with that honestly are trying to do what they can to feel close to God, to receive answers to their prayers, or gain a testimony, or regain a testimony, often they've told me, I just don't feel anything. And unfortunately, if we're not feeling things, a lot of times we stop doing the things that typically bring those kinds of positive spiritual feelings. And if COVID has taught me anything, it's that the spirit still needs the nutrients that you're giving it even if you don't think anything is happening, even if you can't taste. That's an interesting verb. We've seen it several times in the Book of Mormon. As Mormon, the young Mormon, for example, said that he tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. Or last week as we studied the sacrament and that beautiful verse from the Psalms, to taste and see that the Lord is good. But what happens when your receptor sites are down? What happens when you can't taste anything? Well, please then build on the know instead of the taste. Build on the see instead of the taste. The spiritual things that you typically do still do you good. Your spirit still craves connection with heaven. And even if you can't taste or feel like anything is happening, you are doing your spirit more good than you realize. So soldier on, keep fighting the good fight, keep eating, do not starve yourself simply because you cannot taste the things of God. I can tell already that my taste buds are slowly returning. And I believe the same is true spiritually speaking. Don't starve yourself in the meantime. Okay, no more COVID talk. Now, the chapters that we get to study this week are beautiful. Moroni chapter 7 through 9. And even though they're in the book of Moroni, they were all written by the hand of Mormon. Moroni's father. And the fact that they were by Mormon, but in Moroni tells us something about their author, namely about Mormon's humility. As you recall in the Book of Mormon, it's Mormon's job to compile, to abridge, to decide what stays in and what gets dropped off, left on the cutting room floor in the Book of Mormon. And he frequently laments that I cannot even include the 100th part. So we're missing 99% of some good stuff. And what's amazing to me is that even though Mormon included much of his time period's history, he included hardly any of his own teachings to the people. I mean, you occasionally see him breaking through the fourth wall and giving us a thus we see interruption. But to actually sit down and learn from Mormon, to have a discourse that he taught his people, like we have in so many other places, Abinadi, King Benjamin, Alma and Amulek, Samuel the Lamanite, Jesus himself. Mormon doesn't do it. That's amazing to me that he who has read all of Nephite history decides to take his own incredible messages and leave them aside. I'm actually grateful that Moroni followed up and had some extra time and some extra plates to include a few extra things. Namely, Moroni chapter 7, his father's incredible discourse on faith, hope, and charity. It's amazing to me that Mormon left that out. And I'm grateful that Moroni outlived him. So in a way could outrank him and say, Dad, I can't believe you didn't include this. 20 chapters of war and you don't include this one great chapter about the three cardinal Christian virtues? Come on, Dad. Well, I'm going to include it and you aren't around to stop me. 
I'm so glad that we have it. And so that's how Moroni begins this chapter. Now I, Moroni, write a few of the words of my father, Mormon, which he spake concerning faith, hope, and charity. For after this manner did he speak unto the people as he taught them in the synagogue which they had built for the place of worship. I think it's important that we realize that even though so much of what we read in Mormon was all about societal decay and collapse, that there were still good people that they built a synagogue, that they went to uh, this place of worship, that Mormon wasn't just a military commander, but he was also a prophet of God, a preacher of righteousness. And to get a sense of these messages that he was preaching from this chapter alone, lets us know the good that he was doing with that other hat on. We saw it last week when Moroni talked about the Lamanites destroy every person who will not deny the Christ. And I will not deny the Christ. Well, chances are he wasn't alone in that refusal to deny the things that he knew. And perhaps it was among this audience, listening to Mormons speak of faith, hope, and charity, whose fortitude was challenged, and perhaps their lives were sacrificed because they would not back down from the things that they knew. Now, Moroni says that his father's discourse was about faith, hope, and charity. And it is, at least the second half of it. The first half is, has more to do with judgment and laying hold upon good things. But in our minds, this is the chapter about faith, hope, and charity. And I think it is so fitting that among any other topic that Mormon could have taught his people and that Moroni could have reproduced for our people, it would be this incredible message about the cardinal Christian virtues. What was happening in Mormon and Moroni's day, wickedness and unbelief to the point of the Holy Ghost himself not falling upon people. We saw that back in Mormon's book. Think about what that loss of spiritual guidance would mean to people's faith and to their hope and to their charity. And talk about relevance to our day. We, when we talk about signs of the times preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ, we often talk about the, the physical ones, earthquakes in diverse places, wars and rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, plague, you name it. But to me, the spiritual signs of the times are far more devastating and concerning to me. And many of them have to do with faith, hope, and charity. Their loss, that is. According to Joseph Smith Matthew, which is signs of the times central, one of the defining signs of the times is that the very elect according to the covenant will be deceived. That faith will be shaken that's one of the whole reasons I named this channel what I did, to try to fortify, fortify people's faith. But if that's one, that faith will shake, that's the spiritual earthquake in diverse places. Second, that men's hearts shall fail them, a lack and loss of hope in our day. And finally, that the love of men will wax cold, that charity will shrivel up and die in this realm of self-centeredness. What Mormon saw in his day and what Moroni saw in vision from our own is a loss of faith, hope, and charity. And for us to be able to maintain our hold upon those cardinal virtues is going to be key as we prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ so that when he returns, he will not only find faith upon the earth, but that he'll find hope and charity as well. Now, before we get into the specifics of faith and hope and charity that Mormon is going to teach us, I want to give you a big picture of what I'm hoping comes across loud and clear from today's lesson. Again, the second half when we get into those cardinal virtues. Because it's tricky 
Charity has its own thing that we understand, at least I hope. That is the pure love of Christ. We'll see it taught beautifully today. But faith and hope are different or difficult because there seems to be so much overlap between them. Some would even question the order. When Paul talked about these three, he put them in that order, faith, hope, and charity. When Mormon talks about it, he makes it clear why the order is essential, faith to hope to charity. But for many of us, honestly, I think if we thought about it, we'd think, I would actually put hope first. I mean, I hope these things are true. And then that hope works in me until I can begin to believe. That version of hope sounds a lot like Alma 32. Remember when he talks about this experiment upon the word? And his focus is faith, but he doesn't start with it. He says, if you can but desire to believe, let that desire work in you. Start with a particle and let it grow. And for many people, I think they would define that particle as hope. I don't know yet. I don't believe yet, but I I want it to be true. I hope that it is. Well, let that work in you and then begin to really experiment upon the word. Now, I'll admit that's a good way to describe things, that that kind of particle hope, that desire to believe can work and become faith and then grow from there. But there's a difference between the type of hope that Mormon will be focused on today. Listen to this statement from Elder Maxwell. He said, faith and hope are constantly interactive and may not always be precisely distinguished or sequenced. So no wonder it's hard to completely differentiate between the two. There's a lot of overlap between them. He went on in true Maxwellian style, in the geometry of restored theology, hope has a greater circumference than faith. If faith increases, the perimeter of hope stretches correspondingly. I warned you this would be Maxwellian. The geometry of restored theology, hello. Hope with a greater circumference than faith. I think what he's getting at there is just that we can hope for things that we don't yet have full faith in. That that this hope stretches beyond that the larger circumference, right? That my hope can reach and touch things that my faith has not yet fully gripped. What's that old saying? That my reach exceeds my grasp? that I might be able to touch it as I reach out, but it's just fingertip. I can't actually hold it. I can't grasp it yet. And sometimes that's the case with with hope and faith, that I can reach hope, but I can't grasp the things that I'm hoping for, at least not with the fingers of faith. I don't have that belief yet. Now that's all well and good. That's that's an interesting and important way to understand things, that that, that kind of hope does precede real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the kind of hope that Mormon is talking about here. You see, Elder Maxwell also talked about two different types of hope. One he called ultimate hope, and the other he called proximate hopes. Ultimate hope, ultimate like the big picture, far away things, the make it or break it salvationally kinds of things. Exaltation is an ultimate hope. Eternal family is an ultimate hope. Forgiveness through the atonement of Christ is one of our ultimate hopes, as opposed to proximate hopes. Proximate meaning near, close at hand. And those are the day-to-day kinds of hopes. I hope that I pass this test. I hope that I get what I wanted for Christmas. I hope to get o- to overcome this sickness, or I hope that things turn out the way that we want. I think it's those proximate hopes that are the ones that precede faith, whereas that the ultimate hope in salvation can only come following faith. And that's the kind that Mormon is getting at. Let's keep reading and see where he, how he picks up with it. Verse 2, the actual discourse begins. 
Now I, Mormon, speak unto you, my beloved brethren. And it is by the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy will, because of the gift of his calling unto me, that I am permitted to speak unto you at this time. Remember, this is the same Mormon who as a youth, having been visited by Jesus, wants to go out and cry repentance to the people. And yet the Lord reigns him in and does not give him permission to teach the gospel. His people at the time were living without God in the world. And so God decided to let them deal with that. You really want to reject me? Fine. You want to muzzle me? Then I will muzzle my prophets. And so I think it's interesting that here Mormon recognizes, I am permitted to speak to you. It's important that we understand the difference between power and permission. When it comes to the things that we teach, the priesthood blessings that we give, the prayers that we offer, the power is always there if we are living worthy of it. But the permission may or may not be. I remember once years ago, I can't even remember the subject, but I remember Elder Irene talking about a spiritual experience he had had and he had been praying for permission to share it with us. I was so struck by his, his carefulness, his spiritual sensitivity. Am I allowed to teach this to the people? Are they prepared to receive it? Well, in this case, Mormon had that permission. His people must have been prepared to receive the message. He was able to give it to them. And that permission came by way of the grace of Christ, the will of God, and the gift of a calling. We often think of callings as gifts we give to the Lord. And they are. We're serving as best we can. We're offering him what we can. But the way Mormon puts it, the gift of his calling unto me, I hope that we see our callings in that light, that this is a gift that God is offering me. You remember when you were little, or maybe your children still do this to you, where your child will come up and say, hey, dad, can I have 10 bucks? Well, what do you need it for? Because I want to buy you, I want to buy you a present. And, and the irony is lost on these little minds. It's like, wait, you're asking me for money to get me something. Well, here's 20, get me something good. No, but you understand what I'm getting at? There's this, I, I want to give you something, but I have nothing to offer. Will you give me money so that I can then turn it into something I want to give back to you? I know I haven't left you any better than I found you. You could have bought it with your own $10, but I want to give you something and I have nothing to offer. Any gift I give to you is going to be dependent on the gifts you've given to me first. Think about Peter, James, and John as they are leaving full nets to follow the fisher of men and how hard that would be. Remember the story. Their nets were empty just a couple of hours before until Jesus helped to fill them. And when he says to leave those nets and to follow him, if I were Peter, I probably would have thought, if you would have said this just a few hours ago, it would have been so much easier to come. It's easy to leave empty nets but full ones? It's like we just won the lottery. And, and, and now I'm at, you're asking me to leave this? But I can picture the Lord just kind of looking at him until Peter realized, oh yeah, they were empty before you came. And the only reason they're full now is because of you. You gave us something to sacrifice. And I would have had nothing to walk away from if you hadn't given it to me to begin with. I am grateful for opportunities God has given me to serve. 
They are gifts to me so that I have something to offer as a gift to him. Those callings are so full of the grace of God and of Jesus Christ. They come to us by way of his will through his servants. And I pray that we can serve in those callings in a way that shows that we recognize which direction the real gift is going from him to us before it ever goes from us back to him. Now in verse 2, Mormon has told us why he's able to give us this message at all. In verse 3, he's going to tell us who he's giving it to. He already hinted at that in verse 2. I speak unto you, my beloved brethren. Remember, in fact, speaking of faith, hope, and charity. Remember we saw this in the Book of Mormon, where there were times, because of the wickedness of the people all around him, there were times that he prayed without faith, and there were times that he led without hope, but that he was never without charity. These are his beloved brethren. He even termed the wicked that. And these are not the wicked. These are the righteous, this audience there at the synagogue. You get that sense in verse 3, which is such a beautiful verse. Wherefore, I would speak unto you that are of the church. It still exists, even if it's just a tiny remnant, this incredible group of spiritual survivors. He calls them the peaceable followers of Christ, which is an incredible thing to be in a time of almost incessant warfare. But what Mormon recognizes in them is that they have obtained a sufficient hope by which ye can enter into the rest of the Lord from this time henceforth until ye shall rest with him in heaven. Now this is the first mention we have in this chapter of any of the three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And he starts with hope, but it's a particular kind. This is not this preliminary proximate hope. This is ultimate hope. Hope to enter into the rest of the Lord. Hope you're going to make it. Hope that we're going to be saved in the celestial kingdom of God. I love the way he describes it as the rest of the Lord. Section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants describes Moses' efforts to sanctify the people so that they could be ushered into the rest of the Lord. And then it gives this beautiful definition, which rest is the fullness of his glory. That's the Lord's rest. Glory, to be one with him. And that is the ultimate hope that we're going to make it home to heaven. Now, even though that hope is ultimate, that exaltation comes eventually, the, the foretaste of that blessing can come now. That's what I love about the end of that verse. That to enter into the rest of the Lord from this time henceforth until ye shall rest with him in heaven. In other words, it's not just then, it can be right now, which is so important. I think too often all we do is put all our eggs in the resurrection's basket and feel like this life is just some long slog that we're just, I don't know, working on the chain gang, just hoping to make it endure to the end and we're, we're barely holding on by our fingernails. And yet this hope of glory, this hope of entering into the rest of the Lord, that should be from this time henceforth until it actually comes. This is this preview of coming attractions. It's still ultimate hope, but it can be felt proximately. It can be felt right now. I love the title of Adam Miller's recent book, An Early Resurrection. Life in Christ before you die. See, this is one of those areas where I think our evangelical brothers and sisters understand it even better than we do. 
they talk about, have you been saved? I've been asked that by some of my evangelical friends. And the answer, in fact, Elder Oaks gave a whole talk about this shortly before the Southern Baptists were to descend upon Salt Lake City for one of their yearly general conferences. I got a sense from Elder Oaks that he was hoping that we wouldn't make ourselves look like idiots before our evangelical brothers and sisters. The answer is yes, have you been saved? I think too often as Latter-day Saints, we think, well, I, I can't say that I've been saved. That's past tense. Or I can't say I am saved. That's present tense. I can only hope that I will be saved. So let's just keep it in the future tense. But again, if you study the Book of Mormon, especially people like Abinadi, the verb tense gets really fuzzy when you have sufficient faith. Remember when Abinadi says, if Jesus had not come, and then he realizes, oh no, I'm still a BC saint. He hasn't come yet. And then he corrects himself. Speaking of things to come as though they already had come. Well, that's the beauty of prophecy and of faith. It can speak of future in past tense. Will you be saved? Yes. Then have you been? Yes. Christ's atonement is infinite and eternal. It stretches in both directions throughout time. And so an early resurrection, you better believe it. Life in Christ before you die, Adam Miller was spot on. The day will come where we can literally rest with God in heaven. But in the meantime, we can rest with him on earth. We can exercise our faith and hold on to hope and live into that charity so that heaven comes early to us. And that's the kind of faith, hope, and charity that Mormon is speaking of here. Now, like I said, the first specific virtue he mentions of the three is hope, even though he's going to keep them in the proper order of faith to hope to charity. But the way he phrases hope, I think, is important for us to understand. He talks about those who have obtained a sufficient hope to enter the rest of the Lord. A sufficient hope. I once did a study and looked up the word sufficient every time I could find it in Scripture. Sufficiency. It, when, when are things enough? Here, Mormon is hoping that they have enough hope to enter the rest of the Lord. Sufficient hope. And you'll see that idea of sufficiency throughout the scriptures. Remember in Alma 5, when he asks the people of Zarahemla if they had been sufficiently humble. In other words, it's not enough to be humble. You have to be humble enough. Or how about in that same chapter where he asks, have you sufficiently remembered? It's one thing to let spiritual things cross your mind now and then, but do you sufficiently remember? Do you dust off an inventory shelf number one sufficiently so that it actually makes a difference in your life? Or how about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's? It was all we could do to repent sufficiently. Have I repented enough to be forgiven? Or when Jesus descends among the Nephites and eventually gathers all the sick and the afflicted um, around him, and says, I see that your faith is sufficient that I should heal you. And perhaps the most famous one, we studied that a couple of weeks ago in Ether chapter 12, where he says to Moroni several times, my grace is sufficient. So sufficient hope, sufficient humility, sufficient remembering, sufficient repentance, sufficient faith, sufficient grace. Put all of those under this umbrella of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Where Paul says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. So powerful the way Paul says that. All this, this aim for sufficiency, 
It isn't about us. It isn't about us mustering sufficient faith or hope. It's about us relying upon the Lord's all-sufficiency, specifically his all-sufficient grace. Now let's put these together. And I hope if you don't remember anything else from this lesson or from Moroni chapter 7, please remember this statement. Because this is how faith and hope and charity all come together under this umbrella of the Savior's grace. You see, he speaks to people with sufficient hope. Elsewhere, he talked about sufficient faith and sufficient grace. So let's put them all together. And here is the message of Moroni chapter 7. If you have sufficient faith in the Savior's sufficient grace, then how can you not have sufficient hope that he'll bring you home? Do you understand that? Do you feel that? This is ultimate hope that follows faith, saving faith. And it's faith in the Savior Jesus Christ. It's faith in his atoning sacrifice. It's faith in his grace. And it's trusting him. That's what faith is. It is trusting that God's grace, that Christ's atonement is sufficient for you. I sometimes worry about Latter-day Saints who overly worry about their own salvation. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I always got that sense at the end of Temple Recommend interviews when the final question that you're asked, do you consider yourself worthy to enter the Lord's house and participate in temple ordinances? And sometimes there's this uncomfortable kind of pause of, I don't know. I know I've answered all the questions correctly up to now, but am I really worthy? To me, I always go back to the first few questions. Before all of the behavior questions, there are belief questions. Before we get into how you're living the gospel, it's do you trust in Jesus? Do you have a testimony of his atonement and of his role as your Savior and Redeemer? Is your faith in him sufficient to know that you can be cleansed and changed by him? Do you have sufficient faith in his sufficient grace? Or, his, or is his grace insufficient for you? Or you think that you've gone too far, and I know Jesus did a lot of good things for a lot of people, but his atonement still has an, an end cap. He, it wasn't enough for someone like me or the things that I have done. Do you sense the blasphemy of that statement? If his atonement was infinite as well as eternal, then it covers even you and me. Do we not have sufficient faith in his sufficient grace? If you're struggling with that thought, I don't know if I have hope that I'm going to make it home. I don't know if I, yes, I'm holding on to some of these proximate hopes, but the ultimate hope, it's too much to ask for. I'll never enter into the rest of God. But do you understand the problem with that? If your hope is lacking, it's because your faith is yeah, let me say it again. If you don't have enough hope in your own chances to return back to God, if your, if your hope in self is low, then really it's because your faith in Christ is low. You don't have sufficient faith in his sufficient grace. Because if you did, you would have all the hope in the world. You would have hope through him because you have faith in him. And if your faith in Christ is strong, then your hope in him burns brightly. And how can you not end up with charity for him, 
for others, and maybe most importantly, charity for yourself. You see how faith leads to hope, leads to charity? That is what Mormon is going to walk us through in this chapter. And it is so important that you and I grasp this and understand that all-sufficiency. You feel that you're not good enough? Well, guess what? You're right in that. But Christ is good enough. I testify that his grace is sufficient. And if you can exercise sufficient faith in his sufficient grace, then I promise you will have sufficient hope as a result. So let's see how Mormon gets us there. Like I said, faith, hope, and charity is his discourse for the second half of this chapter. How does he get into it? Verse 4. Now, my brethren, I judge these things of you because of your peaceable walk with the children of men. You see the criteria that Mormon is using as he passes this positive preliminary judgment upon his people? He calls them peaceable followers of Christ in three. He mentions their peaceable walk with the children of men in four. And what time period is he dealing with? Incredible wars. The, the Armageddon for his own civilization. And yet even against those odds, these beloved brethren are able to walk peaceably in spite of the war and contention that is all around them. Sound like something that needs to apply to our day when bipartisanship is a, a, a relic of vocabulary past? What's that beautiful line in Longfellow's I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day? And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I'll admit it sometimes feels that way where we cannot speak across any of our divides anymore, politically or religiously or racially or you name it. It doesn't have to be that way. And of all the things that we are called upon to do, it is to be a peaceable follower of Jesus Christ, even at times when hate is strong. Can we agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable? Can we find common humanity even when we can't find common ground, we can all be peaceable followers of Jesus. And people can know that about us by our peaceable walk with the children of men. I have made that my rule, both in interfaith discussion, as well as as I work with people who are struggling in their faith or even attacking the church. I refuse to be offended and I refuse to become offensive I pray that I'm successful in that. I simply want to be a peaceable follower of Jesus. That's what Mormon was aiming for here. That's why he is preaching faith and hope and charity for one another. Those were the only solutions he could come up with, the only ones that would really work. Among this peaceable body of believers, it did work, and it can and must work among the peaceable followers of Christ in our day too. May we be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with us. Now, at this point, when Mormon says in verse four, I judge these things of you, 
I, I wouldn't call this a tangent per se. I, I don't know if he set out beginning this sermon, I'm here to talk about faith, hope, and charity. That was Moroni's description back in verse 1. But again, that's the second half of the discourse. What, what he's going to do now, having just spoken of judging his people because of their, their outward uh, actions, their peaceable walk with the children of men, he's going to talk about judgment for the next little bit. And what Mormon teaches us about judgment is fascinating. I, I wish I was as good a judge as he is. The principles he teaches in the next oh, 10 or 15 verses about judgment are so important as we navigate difficult days, as we try to discern between good and error. This is the information age and the misinformation age. This is the day of fake news and people wondering what's, what can be trusted. Well, notice the principles that Mormon teaches here. Again, relevant for his day and incredibly relevant for our own. Periods of permissiveness, eras of relativism, times when people, like Isaiah prophesied, will call good evil and evil good, sweet for bitter, bitter for sweet. Talk about messed up taste buds, right? Well, that's Mormon's time period to a T, and it's our time period as well. So how do we judge? I'm grateful for this aside he gives us on the principles of judgment. First one he teaches in verse 5, I remember the word of God which saith, By their works ye shall know them. For if their works be good, then they are good also. So there's our first principle. Judge them by their works. By their fruits ye shall know them, we see elsewhere. See what comes of this kind of lifestyle. That's what he just did in verse 4. I can tell by your peaceable walk that you are peaceable followers of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace himself. I've heard it said, show me your schedule and I'll tell you your priorities. In other words, how do you live your life? What do you think is most important? Well, it's going to be manifest in what you do with your time. Well, by these works, I'll be able to see what matters most to you. Now he's going to drill down a little deeper in verse 6. For behold, God hath said, a man being evil cannot do that which is good. For if he offereth a gift, or prayeth unto God, except he shall do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. For behold, it is not counted unto him for righteousness. Okay, so now we're getting a little deeper here. It's not just what you're doing, but why you're doing those things. It's not just action, verse 5, it's intent, verse 6. You see, intent without action is dead in the same way that faith without works is dead. But flip it around, and action without intent, well, that's empty as well. First, he describes it as a neutral. End of verse 6, except he do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. 7, it's not counted for righteousness. In 8, he defines that in terms of the spirit by which we give these gifts. He says, Behold, if a man being evil giveth a gift, he doeth it grudgingly, wherefore it is counted unto him the same as if he had retained the gift. So again, this, this idea of neutrality there. It's like you didn't do anything at all. And yet he very quickly uh, lowers the level of that and actually condemns it. It's no longer neutral. End of verse 8. He is counted evil before God. And then he repeats it in 9. Likewise also it is counted evil unto a man, if he shall pray and not with real intent of heart. Yea, it profiteth him nothing, for God receiveth none such. Seems like Mormon's going back and forth between, well, is it a neutral or is it a negative? Is this a flat-out evil or is it just, it, it's worthless, it doesn't do anything? Again, I think a lot of that revolves around intent. 
What am I doing this for? Which begs the question, should I just not do it then? Remember, Jesus taught about this at the Sermon at the Temple when he was talking about giving alms. And he said, I would that ye should do alms to the poor. So just flat out do them. And then he talks about purifying motives, not doing them to be seen of men, not on the street corner, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But the fact he begins with, but do them, it's not a matter of, well, let's lower our actions until our intent comes up to speed. No, keep the actions going, but purify the motives. If the problem is that we're doing things grudgingly, the answer is not to stop doing them. It's to stop doing them grudgingly. It's to do them with a willing heart and mind. That's what the Lord requires. Overall, what Mormon is getting at here is the need to change our hearts. That's what faith, hope, and charity are all for. Those are heart issues that we're grappling with. The outward action is one thing, but the inner feeling behind it, the intent of the heart, is what matters most in Mormon's mind. That helps solve the problem, in my opinion, of what you see in verse 10 and 11, which can be tricky. In verse 10 he says, Wherefore a man being evil cannot do that which is good, neither will he give a good gift. And I scratch my head with verse 10 because I think, wait, really? Can't evil people do good things? Can't good people do evil things? That seems to be the world I live in. But I think the point there is, that's what I'm describing is the verse 5 level of simply outward actions. Yes, people that are evil to the core can do something good on the outside. And people that are good to the core, peaceable followers of Jesus even, can end up making mistakes, committing sin, doing evil works. But we're not talking about works in verse 5 anymore. We've graduated to intention in verse 6. And that holds true with the kind of starkness described in verse 10. If a man's intention is evil, then he can't do good, even if the outward actions seem to be pointing in that direction. That's not a good gift. You can't do the right things for the wrong reasons. Verse 11 seems to get at that. For behold, a bitter fountain cannot bring forth good water. Neither can a good fountain bring forth bitter water. Wherefore, a man being a servant of the devil cannot follow Christ. And if he follow Christ, he cannot be a servant of the devil. Again, I think it's the all or nothing aspect of verses like 10 and 11 that confuse us. Because again, on the outside, bad people can do good things and good people can do bad things. It happens all the time. But we're talking about fountains now. We're talking about the actual source down deep. That's why I'm grateful he used that as his analogy. A bitter fountain versus a good fountain. What is at the core? What's your heart like? What is driving you? What are the intentions behind these things? What do you want to come of this? Because even if I'm doing these good outward actions, but with an evil intent, then I'm not bringing forth good things. That's why the psalmist talks about not only clean hands, but a pure heart. Elder Oaks has, has analyzed that that one is the outward action, but what about the inward motivation? You might keep your hands clean, but if your heart is impure, God sees that. There might be all kinds of amazing sewage treatment facilities downstream, but if the fountain is bitter, then that's what is defining the water. And conversely, there may be some pollutants that enter the river downstream, 
but my heart was in the right place. My motives were pure. I remember being struck years ago by a statement that Elder Richard G. Scott gave at the MTC once, where he said to the missionaries, I will never again knowingly sin. Now, he wasn't claiming perfection. He would still make mistakes. He would still sin, I'm sure, in life, but not intentionally, not knowingly, not rebelliously, not grudgingly in terms of holding back the gifts of God. So yes, keep working on your works from verse 5. But more than anything in this passage, focus on the intent of your heart. Ask yourself why you're doing the things that you're doing. And if that motivates us to be better in certain areas of our life, I hope it also motivates us to be more merciful with ourselves in other areas. We, th that's the sense you get in, in what uh, Romans chapter 7 where Paul is grappling with his own sinfulness, but he doesn't want to be sinful. And that's the big difference there. Even when I make mistakes, even when I fall, my intent is to do better than I do. There are places where my river gets muddy, but the fountain is clear. It's what's driving me to repent for the mistakes that I make downstream. Now, he helps us understand a little bit more of this in verse 12. Wherefore, all things which are good cometh of God. There's the ultimate fount of all righteousness. And that which is evil cometh of the devil. For the devil is an enemy unto God and fighteth against him continually and inviteth and enticeth to sin and to do that which is evil continually. And then the flip side, but behold, that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve him is inspired of God. See how he's trying to help us understand how to pass preliminary judgments on things? Which direction is it moving me in? What effect does it have on my works? And what effect does it have on my heart and its intention? Does it invite me to do good or evil? Does it entice me to do right or wrong. I think it's interesting those two verbs, to invite and to entice. Invite is just the, here, do this. Here's this open invitation. But to entice, there's more of the persuasive power. This is what, what you want. I'm working on the, the source of the fountain now. This, this is enticement. Does it invite and entice me to do good, to love God? to serve him, then I know who it's coming from. He then says in 14, it's interesting, wherefore take heed, my beloved brethren, that ye do not judge that which is evil to be of God, or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. He warns about that again in the end of verse 18. See that ye do not judge wrongfully, for with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. So this is something we've got to work on. We've got to learn to judge better than we do. And then in verse 15, Mormon seems to suggest how easy it's supposed to be. And this can be a frustrating verse, especially for you and me, mere mortals that sometimes don't see things as clearly as Mormon himself does. Notice how he says this in 15. For behold, my brethren, it is given unto you to judge, that ye may know good from evil. And the way to judge is as plain that ye may know with a perfect knowledge as the daylight is from the dark night. 
whoa, night and day is how clear this is supposed to be for us. Good and evil. Have you ever had one of those times where you're sick and you, you take a nap, but by the time you wake up, you're not sure if you actually took a nap or if you fell asleep for the night. You ever had those, those moments? You wake up and you're kind of totally out of it and you're looking around and you're wondering, well, how long was I asleep for? And, and let's say you, you look outside of the window and, and it's, it's kind of dusk or is it dawn? I can't tell if I'm looking east or west and I can't remember which one's sunups or sundown, whatever, so I'm not sure. You look at the clock and it says like 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock. And you're like, great, that doesn't help me. I can't tell if this is dawn or dusk, if this is 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. Now, again, if you're looking at the clock and it says 7 and you look outside and you can't tell if it's morning or evening, that's one thing. But if you look at the clock and it says 12 and then you look outside and you can't tell if that's 12 midnight or 12 noon, then you really were sick. You really got problems. That one's supposed to be crystal clear. For Mormon, judgment is not a dusk versus dawn kind of dichotomy. It's noon and midnight. It's black and white for him. And that's what can be so frustrating for us because so much of life seems to be choices between shades of gray. So there's a part of me that looks at verse 15 and thinks, well, I guess that's what it's like for a prophet, but I'm no prophet. And I struggle sometimes to know what to judge, what to say is good or what to say is evil about those gray areas. What do I do with this? Well, Mormon's going to try to help us through this. Don't, don't completely dismiss him just because it seems like, well, easy for you to say, Mr. Prophet. Uh, you live in a black and white world. Well, I don't. Well, keep reading and let's see how he helps us through it. Verse 16, behold, the spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. So that's the first thing to realize. We each have a conscience. We each have the light of Christ. We each have something, some in, internal compass that helps us see or feel at least what is right and wrong. And he clarifies what that is in 16. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. Here's how you do it. Everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. See, he mentioned perfect knowledge in 15 about daylight versus dark. And here he says it again in 16. Perfect knowledge. How? Through that light of Christ. It invites me to do good. It persuades me to believe in Christ's gifts and power. 17, he says more. Whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then ye may know with a, here's that phrase again, perfect knowledge, it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work. He persuadeth no man to do good. No, not one. At least that's never his intention. Sometimes outward actions. He may be tricking us into thinking he's moving us forward. He's not. His intention is never that we come home to God. That's not, his, that's not him. That's not his angels. That's not those who subject themselves unto him. He confirms it in 18. Now, my brethren, seeing that ye know the light by which ye may judge, which light is the light of Christ, make sure you don't judge wrongfully. And then 19, again, he hits it home. I beseech of you, brethren, that ye should search diligently in the light of Christ, that ye may know good from evil. If you will lay hold upon every good thing and condemn it not, ye certainly will be a child of Christ. And that concludes his discourse on judgment. 
that, that preliminary message before he gets into faith, hope, and charity. The key, in my opinion, is what he said there in verse 19, to search diligently in the light of Christ. I think the best place to see that elsewhere in Scripture is section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's in section 84, verse 45. Notice he says, The word of the Lord is truth. And whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And the spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world. So you see that connection between section 84 and Moroni chapter 7? In 84, it's the spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world. In Moroni chapter 7, the spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. And that spirit or any of its synonyms as listed in verse 45, word, truth, light, spirit, Jesus, all of those things are meant to help us discern things. I sometimes compare it to a homing beacon that God places within each of us. Or uh, what do they call those? Tuning forks. That when God hits his tuning fork with truth or spirit or light or word, or Jesus, it resonates with us. We, have, we are tuned to the same frequency. And when God extends truth, or light, or spirit into the world, something within us vibrates. It resonates with that. And then we have a choice as it invites us and entices us to come to the source of that frequency. It's like when you're little and you're trying to find something and they're like, well, you're getting hotter, hotter, hotter. And by paying attention to that heat, you can approximate, you can get closer to the source that you're seeking. Same thing is happening here. And as he goes on to say in section 84, that spirit enlightens every man that hearkens to the voice of the spirit. So if you'll listen, if you'll respond, if you'll go in the direction of the sound, of the feeling, of the, of the vibrating frequency, then you will come unto God, even the Father. That's the aim of that tuning fork. That's the hope in, in every call to move towards the light. It invites and entices us to come to God. Now that's all well and good until we still have to struggle with this, but it still feels a lot like shades of gray for me. How do I do this? Well, I'm grateful that, Mor that Mormon here paints such a stark black and white dichotomy because in, in terms of God and devil, there really are only two options. And so if you're on the path with God at one extreme and the adversary at the other, then there really are only two ways to go. You're either going towards God or you're going towards the adversary. Now, shades of gray only seem to appear when you're off the path, looking at it from some sterile third-party position. And from a distance, you're looking at it going, well, over here is perfect, brilliant, spotless white. And over here is the dark night, right? We got mid, uh, midday and midnight. And from here, we can see all the shades of gray in between. But if you're actually on the path itself, staring a decision in the face, simply search it through the light of Christ, right? Search diligently in the light of Christ, and with that conscience, with that feeling, ask yourself this question simply. Will the, will the decision I'm about to make, or the step I'm about to take, will it move me towards God or away from Him? 
I don't have to compare that to anyone else's choice. That's, again, where shades of gray come in. That's, that's getting ourselves off the path rather than recognizing where you happen to be right now. It's like, well, but this, and what about that, and all these mitigating circumstances? No, simply ask yourself, at this point where I happen to be right now, will taking this step move me towards God or away from Him? By the way, this helps me not have to judge other people either. Because what if someone is, you've probably heard this, that I'd rather be a step away from hell facing heaven than a step away from heaven facing hell. Again, you're, you're in the white section, but if you're facing the wrong direction, then what do you see off in the distance? Black night. Or I have not been living the way I should. I am, I'm way far, you know, I'm far gone on this path towards the adversary, but I have done an about face. I have turned and I am repenting and I'm making progress. I'm nowhere near where I want to be, but facing in that direction, what do I see? Again, if the extremes are black and white with all the shades of gray in between, but on the path, if I am facing God, then I see white in the distance. And if I'm facing evil, then I see dark in the distance. That's how a spectrum with every shade of gray can be boiled down to the intent, the ultimate aim, the final destination. Is it daylight or dark night? perfect knowledge. Will this move me towards God or away from him? Search in the light of Christ with that question in mind, and you'll know which direction you need to be moving. And like I said, it will give you patience and understanding for people who might seem to you are far off the path. But if they are taking baby steps towards the light, then they're doing better than we realize or perhaps better than we'll admit. Don't judge that step which came from God to be evil just because they're not living up to your level yet. In other words, you might be looking back at them and thinking that they are living in darkness, but from their position along the path, as they are inching towards the light, they are responding to God's invitations and his enticements to come home. And he plays the long game with them, with all of us. I hope that makes sense. Perhaps the best way to illustrate this is to see the advice that Susanna Wesley gave to her son, John, as he was headed off to college. Tough time to live the gospel, right? Even back in the 18th century. And this incredible woman, the mother of Methodism, we could call her, said this to her son, instead of having every little checkpoint, because that was his question, how do I know what to do? How do I judge if I'm doing what's right or wrong when I'm away from the influence of my parents off at college? He wanted a checklist. I mean, this is the founder of Methodism, right? He wanted, what's the method? What's the checklist? What, what boxes can I check to know that I'm doing what's right? And his mother's wisdom came through so beautifully in her advice. She said simply this, would you judge the lawfulness of pleasure? Take this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, whatever takes away your relish for things spiritual, whatever obscures your sense of God, that is sin to you, no matter how innocent it may seem in itself. You sense that wisdom 
from Mother Wesley? Don't be comparing yourselves to other people. You might be further along the path and think, well, I'm a, at a lighter shade than they are, so this must be okay what I'm thinking of doing. No. If it obscures your sense of God, then you're facing in the wrong direction. If it weakens conscience, then it's a sin against conscience, and you're moving away from the light of Christ. So as you're judging, judge righteous judgment. Seek diligently in the light of Christ. Recognize what pull are you responding to. Notice the intent of what is being presented to you as an invitation or as an enticement. Where will it eventually lead you? And with that in mind, lay hold upon good things. Now in verse 20, Mormon says, Now my brethren, how is it possible that you can lay hold upon every good thing? Now I come to that faith of which I said I would speak. And I will tell you the way whereby ye may lay hold on every good thing. So now, okay, that was all introduction. I was trying to help you see what we're after here is laying hold upon every good thing. And that's going to take faith, hope, and charity. But even to know what is good that we should be laying hold upon, that takes righteous judgment. And so I've tried to teach you that along the way. But now we're at the point I want to really talk about my message. How do I lay hold upon good things? Don't forget, again, from Mormon's time period, this is a day where things were becoming slippery. They would fall through the fingers. They couldn't hold on to anything that was theirs. Remember, they were sleeping on their swords. This, this is a lot like the end of Jaredite civilization, the end of Nephite civilization. Look, looks like it's going to be the end of our civilization too. How do I strengthen my grip on good things? I can't hold on to my faith. I can't hold on to my family. Things that matter to me are slipping through my fingers. How do I lay hold upon good things in a world that wants to make good look evil and evil look good instead? Well, it's going to boil down to faith and hope and charity. That's why verse 20, let's talk about good things. 21, aha, that brings me to the subject at hand. Now let's talk about faith. He will address faith for about the next 20 verses. From 21 to 39 is his focus on faith. And in 22, he tells us how it comes. Behold, God knowing all things, being from everlasting to everlasting. Behold, he sent angels to minister unto the children of men, to make manifest concerning the coming of Christ. And now let me answer the question. And in Christ, there should come every good thing. You want to hold on to good things? Then hold on to them through Jesus Christ. He's the only thing that can strengthen your grip to the point of not allowing the things that matter most to fall through your fingers. Totally reminds me of Alma's advice to, to Helaman back in Alma 37 about these plates that he's passing on. The most important thing, and you cannot let them slip, but if you will turn to God for all things that you should do with them, then no power on earth or hell will take them from you entrust these things to the Lord. Entrust Jesus with your faith. Entrust him with your family. Entrust him with the things that matter most. He has a grip that will not allow anything to fall. And we can know that as we learn his word. That's why he sent angels to minister unto men. Verse 23, that's why he declared these truths to prophets. By his own mouth, that Christ should come 
Verse 24, Behold, there were diverse ways that he did manifest things unto the children of men, which were good. All things which are good cometh of Christ. Otherwise men were fallen, and there could no good thing come unto them. You see that that's our only hope? Goodness comes through goodness personified. Jesus himself. 25, Wherefore, by the ministering of angels, by every word which proceeded forth out of the mouth of God. See, he's listing all these sources to understand God's word. Angels, prophets, the voice of God himself. That's how men began to exercise faith in Christ. And thus, by faith, they did lay hold upon every good thing. And thus it was until the coming of Christ. So that was all the B.C. saint experience, looking forward to Jesus. Well, what about for us A.D. saints, including Mormon and Moroni? Verse 26, after that he came, things didn't change much. Men also were saved by faith in his name. And by faith, they become the sons of God. As surely as Christ liveth, that's oath language there. He spake these things unto our fathers, saying, here's the promise. Whatsoever thing ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is good, in faith believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be done unto you. So B.C. or A.D., before Jesus comes or after he comes, the fact that he comes at all is what makes the difference. It's through faith in Christ that we're saved. It's through faith in Christ that we become his children. It's through faith in Christ that we receive the righteous desires of our heart. We can know that through him, every good thing can come into our life. He is the source of each of them. Trust that. That will require miracles, which therefore requires our faith in a God of miracles. Verse 27, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased because Christ hath ascended into heaven? and hath sat down on the right hand of God, then notice this phrase, to claim of the Father his rights of mercy, which he hath upon the children of men. The rights of mercy. We usually think of rights only going along with justice. But since justice has been satisfied through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, then he does have the right to mercy. Justice can demand nothing else. It would be unjust of justice not to allow mercy to claim her rights when the price had already been paid by Jesus. And because Jesus has the right to mercy, he's not breaking any rules by being forgiving. He's not turning a blind eye to the law. He fully satisfied all of its demands, the ends of the law. But it gives him the, the right to be able to say to us, you can be forgiven, you can be cleansed, you can lay hold upon every good thing. Ultimate hopes are there for the taking because I have paid the price. It is my right to be merciful to you. So why would you not have hope in your salvation? I can claim it and claim you in the process. Trust me on that. Have enough faith. Have sufficient faith in my sufficient grace. My sufficient justice. My sufficient mercy. It all comes together through the atonement. And if that doesn't leave you with sufficient hope, then what can? Trust me on this. It is still a day of miracles. And the greatest miracle is the one I'm working in you. Verse 28. He hath answered the ends of the law. He's not getting away with anything. 
It's not some end around. He got to the end. He satisfied the whole thing. He claimeth all those who have faith in him. Because our faith then leads to our repentance and our covenant making and keeping. It's the doctrine of Christ unfolding. They who have faith in him will cleave unto every good thing. They'll hold onto it with both hands. Wherefore, he advocateth the cause of the children of men. He dwelleth eternally in the heavens. You see how Mormon is trying to establish Christ's credentials here. He's answered the ends of the law. He can claim anyone who has faith in him. So have faith in him and let hope come flooding in as a result. He's advocating your cause. He's the lawyer for the defense and he never loses a case as long as the defendant is willing to accept his sacrifice in his place. That's the beauty of section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where we finally learn what the defense attorney is going to say, how he's going to advocate our cause. He's going to say, according to that beautiful revelation, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him in whom there was no sin. Now that's the strangest defense argument you could imagine. This is the lawyer saying, can you take your eyes off the defendant for a moment and look at me, the defense attorney, instead? Because if you look at him or her, admittedly, you will see guilt. But if you look at me, behold the sufferings and death of him in whom there was no sin. Look at me instead. And you will see an innocence so intense that it can change their scarlet sin to white as wool, cleanliness and purity. I am advocating their cause. I have answered the ends of the law. I have the rights of mercy and I am claiming them. So let them go free. And that's exactly what the father does as he looks upon his son in compassion. And nothing's going to change that. He dwelleth eternally in the heavens. Court doesn't get adjourned before we are set free by our advocate with the Father. What a miracle that is. Verse 29, Mormon goes on, because he hath done this, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased? See, that's the beauty of the miracle of the atonement. It wasn't just what he did. It's what he did then that prepares him to continually claim the rights of mercy for us. Remember section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants. How does Jesus define the atonement? He calls it his preparations unto the children of men. I'm prepared now to apply the atonement to your every need. That is him eternally dwelling in the heavens. That is the atonement eternally having effect upon our lives. That's the miracle never ceasing. He goes on, Behold, I say unto you, Nay, neither have angels ceased to minister unto the children of men. He just keeps going. Behold, they are subject unto him to minister according to the word of his command, showing themselves unto them of strong faith and a firm mind in every form of godliness. So those same angels that were ministering back in verse 22 and verse 25 before the coming of Christ, they're still at work even after his coming, declaring these truths unto the children of men. Mormon knows of what he speaks. Now I need to say something about verse 30. 
And I want to tread lightly here because this is some sensitive stuff. Again, he's talking about the ministering of angels, and we could fit other things under that heading uh, as far as the second comforter is concerned, the coming of Jesus Christ, knowing the voice of God, and so on. And those are promises made in Scripture. There is truth there, but there is also potential for imbalance there. And I've seen it among some people who have left the church. There are certain splinter groups out there who don't claim to have left the church at all, but actually feel like they are a church within the church, that they are the, the true church of the firstborn, that they have, have gone beyond the, the, the lower levels of living that the rest of the church and even the prophets and apostles of God themselves are at. I work with people that are struggling in their faith often, and the vast majority of them, as far as where are they on the, on the Goldilocks zone, most of them leave the church because their faith is too cold. But some, their quote-unquote faith is too hot, and it burns towards the levels of, of overzealousness or fanaticism that can lead people astray. The sense that I absolutely have to have the second comforter right now Please don't forget what the Lord said in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 68. Sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him, for he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. I think sometimes fanaticism or overzealousness leads us to focus on the first half of that verse at the expense of the second. We, we almost demand the ministering of angels. I remember President Faust talked about the desire to see the face of God as a righteous one. That's a beautiful thing. But when it gets to the point of overzealousness, that's why I love in verse 30 where Mormon is saying that angels minister according to the word of God's command, and it's his will, not our own, but three parts for us, a strong faith, a firm mind, and every form of godliness. That firm mind is one that I sometimes worry about for people who are, are, are leaning too far in that direction. And notice verse 31, the office of their ministry is to call men unto repentance and to fulfill and to do the work of the covenants of the Father which he hath made unto the children of men. They're there to prepare the way among the children of men by declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord that they may bear testimony of him. There's a lot in that verse, but unpack it. And what is, what's the ministering of angels for? To call us unto repentance, to fulfill the covenants of the Father, to help gather Israel on both sides of the veil. Exactly what President Nelson is encouraging us to do these days. He is a chosen vessel of the Lord. And the word of God is being declared to him so that he can bear testimony of these truths to us. But I sense a firmness of mind in President Nelson that I don't always sense in some of these splinter groups that are becoming overzealous and fanatical. There's a form of godliness in simply living the gospel of Jesus Christ in a balanced way, in a slow and steady approach proving contraries between temperance and zeal, between patience and urgency. That's all part of the firmness of mind, I believe, that Mormon is aiming towards. And again, in verse 31, 
is emphasizing what happens to the chosen vessels of the Lord. I would put prophets and apostles in that group. Then in verse 32, how about the rest of us? By so doing, the Lord God prepareth the way that the residue of men, all the rest of us, may have faith in Christ, that the Holy Ghost may have place in their hearts according to the power thereof. And after this manner bringeth to pass the Father the covenants which he hath made unto the children of men. That's how the Father does his work, by declaring truth to his chosen vessels, who then bear testimony to the rest of the world, crying repentance, encouraging the rest of us to make covenants so that we can engage with the Father in his work, having faith in Christ, letting the Spirit fill our hearts. That's how the Lord does His work. That's how the Father keeps His word. Remember section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants. To some it is given to know these things, and to others it is given to believe on their words, that they also could have eternal life. There may be a hierarchy of spiritual gifts, and some absolutely know, and others believe on their words, but there's no hierarchy of result. Both groups obtain eternal life as they continue faithful. So rather than getting imbalanced or overzealous about being one of these chosen vessels of the Lord, that, I, that I'm supposed to be the one that, I don't know, dies in the streets of Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, or the one who builds the new Jerusalem in, in independence, I, I, be very careful. Seek a strong but simple faith. Seek a firm mind. Seek godliness by repenting, by doing the Father's work as simply but as steadily as we can, gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. To find that Goldilocks zone, some people in the world need to be a little bit more engaged in God's work. Others need to calm down a bit and realize that the certain blessings of God come in God's own time and in God's own way, according to God's own will. Be zealous, but not overzealous. Be diligent, but be temperate in all things. Alma's advice to Shiblon and Alma 38 is really good here. At the end of the day, simply follow the doctrine of Christ. It's all here. Faith in Christ, repentance through him, immersion in his gospel, and keeping the commandments so that the Holy Ghost can be our constant companion. You get that sense in the next few verses. 33, Christ himself said, If ye will have faith in me, ye shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. Just make sure that it is expedient in him instead of just expedient in yourself. Some overzealousness. Verse 34, He hath said, so still from Christ, Repent, all ye ends of the earth, Come unto me, be baptized in my name, and have faith in me that ye may be saved. And this is fourth article of faith. This is simple, pure doctrine of Jesus. Faith, repentance, baptism. Verse 35, Now, my beloved brethren, if this be the case, that these things are true, which I have spoken unto you. I love that he just, he has confidence in it. I know they're true myself, but if they are, you're going to have to find this out for yourself. I love that he's not ramrodding it down their throats. He's not forcing it upon anyone. He judges them well. You're the peaceable followers of Christ. I believe that you're open to the confirming influence of the Holy Ghost. So I'm just going to teach and let the chips fall where they may. I know that the Spirit will confirm truth to you as it invites and entices you to come unto Him and to serve Him. So, if this be the case that these things are true, which I've spoken unto you, 
and here's more of his confidence, and God will show unto you with power and great glory at the last day that they are true. And if that's the case, if they're true, has the day of miracles ceased? Has he closed up shop? No. His atonement was preparation for him to continue bringing us home the rest of our existence. Verse 36, have angels ceased to appear unto the children of men? No. Has he withheld the power of the Holy Ghost from them? No. Will he, so long as time shall last, or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face thereof to be saved? Behold, I say unto you, nay. Just in case we miss the point of his rhetorical questions, he boldly declares it. He's not closing up shop early. Have you ever rushed? My wife and I always seem to be late on our dates, and we're, so we're rushing to some restaurant right before it closes. And you can always tell, it, it, you can sense among some uh, workers where they're just, uh, and they're just giving you this stare like, don't you dare walk through that door. I've already been cleaning up things uh, in, in the, the, the kitchen area, and I don't want to have to fire up the burners again. Sometimes it's like a salad place, and like, oh, well, we, we already ran out of tomatoes. It's like, really? You don't have any more tomatoes? Well, we'd have to chop more. Or what about the, the drinks over there? Oh, it's like, well, we already cleaned out the, the, the machine. Do we, do we really have to refill? <sighs> well, according to my watch, it's not closing time yet. You're still supposed to be open. Well, sometimes we'll be merciful. My wife was a, a server when she was in college, and so she understands that feels their pain. But it's like, you said you'd be open till 11. It's only 10.55. But do you understand what I'm getting at? There's this mentality among some of just, it's so much easier if we can just wrap things up. Do I really have to fire up the burners and chop the, the tomatoes and refill the drink machine? Because one latecomer still wants to have a meal? Can't you go to Denny's or something? They're always open. But I love what Mormon is placing before us there. The Lord never closes up shop early. There is no closing time for him. But even if there were, and a hungry soul knocked on the door, even when it was the sign had been turned around from open to closed, the Lord would unlock the door and open it and turn the lights back on and take the chairs from off the table and put them back on the floor and pull out the menu and say, what would you like? I'm sure our, in our own awkwardness, we would mumble something like, well, I, I, you don't have to fire up the burners right now. You don't have to. And he would just stop and say, no, anything on the menu, you're, it's worth it. You're worth it. I'm not going to stop sending angels. I'm not going to stop sending the Holy Ghost. I'm not going to stop in my preparations to the children of men, not until everyone's home. I never close up shop early. Now that then puts the burden on us because do we sometimes close up shop early on ourselves or on others? Do we sometimes close the door of faith even when it still needs to be functioning? Verse 37 suggests that we do. It's a resounding nay on, on God closing up shop. But then he says, it is by faith that miracles are wrought, and it is by faith that angels appear and minister unto men. Wherefore, if these things have ceased, woe be unto the children of men, for it is because of unbelief, and all is vain. 
Those were principles that Moroni taught back at the end of the Book of Mormon. Now do you see where he gets it? Verse 38, Mormon continues, For no man can be saved according to the words of Christ, save they shall have faith in his name. Wherefore, if these things have ceased, then has faith ceased also. And awful is the state of man, for they are as though there had been no redemption made. Faith without works is dead, but works without faith is even deader. Even when those works were performed by the Savior, we must have faith in him or it's as if he did nothing to redeem us. Now 39, he's going to pass another preliminary judgment upon his people, a positive one. He says, Behold my beloved brethren, I judge better things of you. For I judge that ye have faith in Christ. And how does he know? Because of your meekness, which I think is such a beautiful criteria. How do I see your faith? I recognize your meekness that you just put it in his hands, you leave it with him, you trust him. There isn't this overzealousness or overconcern on your part. There's just this steady, calm faith in Jesus Christ. There isn't pride on our part, thinking we're better than someone else. There isn't pride thinking we don't need the Savior. Our meekness shows that our faith and trust is in him. And that's the kind of faith that's required. If we don't have that kind of faith in him, he says, then ye are not fit to be numbered among the people of his church. Well, we probably wouldn't be claiming to be members of it anyway. We'd probably just be setting up some kind of church of ourselves instead. Now, by the time you get done with verse 39, he has finished his segment on faith. Faith to lay hold upon every good thing. Faith to repent and to make and keep covenants. Faith to know that God is still at work in you and on you that he hasn't given up on any of us. And if you have faith like that, sufficient faith in Christ's sufficient grace, then what's the natural result? Hope. Ultimate hope. That Christ is serious about bringing you home. That you are a good thing that he has laid a hold upon and he will not let us go until he's exalted us. In verse 40, he says again, my beloved brother, and I would speak unto you concerning hope. And then he asks this interesting question that we sometimes misinterpret. How is it that ye can attain unto faith, save ye shall have hope? See, sometimes we read that and think, oh, well, the order must be off. It must be, we have to have hope first, because how on earth are you ever going to attain unto faith, save you already had hope? You've got to hope for it before you can actually believe in it. Well, that's, that's true in terms of the lowercase h, hope proximate hopes, like I desire it to be true, and then my faith can grow out of that. But, when it, but he's not talking about proximate hopes. He's talking about ultimate hope here. He clarifies that in verse 41. What is it that ye shall hope for? Behold, I say unto you that ye shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal. And this because of your faith in him according to the promise. So you sense that? This is ultimate hope, not proximate hope. This is big picture things. This is hope through the atonement and through the resurrection that you will obtain the rest of the Lord, that he's going to bring you home, that you'll be exalted in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. And it's that hope that comes because of faith in Christ according to the promise, the promise that he's not going to close up shop, the promise that he will help you hold on to every good thing, the promise that he will help you judge and move in the direction of light, that you're going to be able to figure this out and become like him. He promised that. 
He is the word of God. He keeps God's promises because he's promise personified. You'll end up with that hope because you exercise that kind of faith. Now go back to verse 40 and read it right. How is it that you can attain unto faith in Christ, save ye shall have hope as a result of that faith? So again, it's not hope leading to faith. It's hope coming as a result of our faith. How can you attain unto real faith in Christ and not end up with hope in him and hope in your own salvation as a result? Verse 42, again, he clarifies it. Wherefore, if a man have faith in Christ, in the promises that he keeps, then he must needs have hope as a result. For without faith, there cannot be any hope, at least not the ultimate kind that he is talking about here. Verse 43, again, Behold, I say unto you that ye cannot have faith and hope, save he shall be meek and lowly of heart. So he's going back to that, that criteria he recognizes. That's why the sufficiency that Paul talked about is not sufficiency in self. Our sufficiency is of God. I know I can't do it on my own. I recognize my own weakness. Remember, this is Ether 12. I am coming unto God, and as I do so, he shows unto me my weakness. But that weakness then helps me to become humble. It is my meekness and lowliness of heart that then helps me place not my faith in myself, like I'll be able to do this, but my faith in Christ that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. On my own, I will never be sufficient, but with sufficient faith in Christ's sufficient grace. That's humility and meekness and loneliness of heart. Then, of course, I have sufficient hope to be saved. I know that he will not give up on me. He never turns off the light. He never locks the door. He never turns the sign around to say closed. I just have to be meek and humble enough to recognize that. Verse 44, he reiterates that, If so, his faith and hope is vain, for none is acceptable before God, save the meek and lowly in heart. If a man be meek and lowly in heart and confesses by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, then what's the result? All this to build up our faith and our hope. But here's the final result. He must needs have charity as a result. Again, we're talking about results here. Not like, well, if you had enough love, then you'd end up with faith. If you had enough hope, then you'd end up with faith. No, just believe in Jesus. Search in the light of Christ to see those things that invite and entice you to come unto him. Look for that source of the good fountain and come to it. And with that faith driven by your meekness and loneliness of heart, then how can you not end up with hope that you're going to make it? And as a result of that, how would you end up without charity. Pure love of Christ, to love him for all that he's done, to love him for his sufficient grace, to love others for his sufficient grace for their sakes. And how could you not love yourself knowing of his sufficient grace for you? Charity becomes the ultimate result of this process, not just the ultimate goal of something we're supposed to muster on our own. No, we'll see that clearly by the end of the chapter. If verse 44 is there in your life, meekness and loneliness of heart, 
which brings you down to the depths in humility so that you place your faith in Jesus instead of in yourself, with faith in him leading to hope in him, then of course you must needs have charity. How could you avoid it? It's a natural result. If you don't have charity, you're nothing. Wherefore, you must needs have charity. Then this beautiful definition of it, speaking by the same inspiration that moved the Apostle Paul to teach similar truths, charity suffereth long and is kind. It envieth not, it is not puffed up, it seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. It thinketh no evil, it rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Charity beareth all things, it believeth all things, it hopeth all things, it endureth all things. Charity is Christ. He is charity personified. He is the love of God, for God is love. And so reread verse 45 and recognize throughout the ministry of Jesus both the mortal ministry that prepared him for the atonement and the ongoing eternal ministry that has proceeded ever since. Jesus suffers long so that he can understand our own sufferings and sorrows. It is empathy that grows as a result of that. Jesus is kind. He knows what we're made of and looks upon us in mercy and compassion. He envies not and is not puffed up. He simply went about doing good and didn't care what he lacked as compared to what other people had. He never sought his own, but only to do the will of him who sent him. He wasn't easily provoked. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He thought no evil, but always gave everyone the benefit of the doubt. He never rejoiced in iniquity. Do we sometimes do that in our weak humanity? Finding joy in our own sin, rejoicing in that kind of iniquity, or, and maybe this is even more twisted, rejoicing in someone else's iniquity because we know that eventually they'll have to pay the piper. Jesus was never that way. He paid the piper himself so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus always rejoiced in the truth. He was the way, the truth, and the life after all. He bore all things under the weight of an infinite load. He believed all things, especially believing in us. He hoped all things. See faith and hope there? To believe all things and to hope all things. He believes in us. He has hope for us. Can we not believe in him and have hope through him? Can we not endure a little bit more knowing that the Son of Man hath descended below them all? Verse 46, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing, for charity never faileth. It's the one attribute that can always be depended upon. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all. Everything else must fail. This is where you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see that even though you could speak with the tongue of men and of angels, if you don't have charity, you're nothing. Tinkling cymbals, sounding brass. If you give all that you have to the poor and don't have charity, that's an ironic one. Wait, if you give charity but don't have charity, how's that work? Well, remember we saw that earlier in the chapter. It's not just about the works. It's about the intents of your heart. 
So if you do all these outward actions of charity, but don't have charity as the inner motivation behind them, if it, then it's grudgingly, and it's counted either as neutral or as negative in God's eyes. The attribute with the greatest staying power and saving power is charity. It's the one that most closely resembles the ministry of Christ. He defines it in 47 as charity is the pure love of Christ. A lot of ways to look at that. The pure love of Christ as in the love that comes from Jesus to us. Yes, that's charity. How about our love for Jesus, our love of Christ? Is that charity? Yes. Or what about the love that Jesus places within us that makes us want to live outside ourselves? That's the way Joseph Smith described it. The closer we approach God, the more we look with compassion upon perishing souls. That's Christ's love of others within us. All three of those aspects are charity. Our love for Jesus, love from Jesus, love for others through Jesus. That kind of love endures forever. And I love how he ends verse 47. Whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. Now that's just a fancy way of saying who, has, who possesses it. But just the way it's phrased, I don't know, for me, I just think it's one thing to possess something. It's another thing to be possessed of something. It's like when we talk about, I'm possessed. Well, I guess the sense of something else is calling the shots. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, that person must be possessed. Well, to be possessed of charity? Wow. It's not just that I'm, I'm mustering this feeling and, and trying to be loving to people because I, I possess charity. No, I can't help myself. Charity possesses me and it is moving me to act in certain ways towards the children of God, to treat them the way he treats them. No wonder it is well with us and well with them when charity becomes the possessing, driving attribute within ourselves. How does it come? I love the way Mormon ends this chapter in verse 48. Such a beautiful verse. Wherefore, so to sum up this entire discourse, wherefore, my beloved brethren, keeps calling them that. He's obviously possessed of charity. You want it for yourself? Then pray. Pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart. It, this can't be grudgingly. This can't be half-hearted. This must be sincere of heart, full intent. All the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love. Because if you're filled with it, then there's no room for lesser emotions. There's no room for envy or pride. No room for fear or self-centeredness. There's only room for love. You're filled with it. And it's love which he hath bestowed... It's a gift, right? We're not mustering it within ourselves, which he has bestowed upon all who are true followers of his son, Jesus Christ. This is putting the actions to the test and knowing that the intent will follow. This is following Jesus in the way that you treat other people. This is the gift of his calling unto each of us. And in the wake of that service, will come the feeling that is meant to infuse it. We are true followers of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And the only way we'll be able to do his work in his way is with his love. And so he bestows it upon us. He knows that we need it. And so it comes as a gift of grace for each of us. That's how we become the sons and daughters of God. Like father, like son or daughter in this case. We are possessed of that same attribute that Jesus possessed to perfection. And if that's the path we're on, then where does it lead? Not just to becoming the sons and daughters of God, but becoming like him. That when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified even as he is pure. I just want to be more like Jesus. I want to be a window to his love for other people. So keep on scrubbing until there are no streaks remaining. I want perfect transparency for the love of God to shine through. I just want to follow him. I just want to take the gift of his callings that he's given me and return them to him with whatever increase I can offer. I want to be a true follower of him so that I can be filled with his love. Jesus is the author of our faith, but he can never be the finisher of it until we are filled with his love, which he bestows as a gift anytime we need it to be able to reach out to the people that he loves and wants to minister to. Elder Joseph B. Worthen, who was such a loving soul himself, once gave a talk about kindness, about this pure love of Christ that, is, that comes of charity. And he said this, but what if people are rude? His response, love them. But if they're obnoxious, love them. But what if they offend? Surely I must do something then. Yes, Elder Worthman answered, love them. Wayward? Yeah, the answer is the same. Be kind. Love them. I want to conclude chapter 7 with this final thought for you. I remember years ago as a missionary struggling with the inactivity problem I saw on my mission and hearing from my mission president that there tend to be three main reasons that people walk away from the church. One of those has to do with testimony, that doubts, concerns arise and they no longer believe. A second reason has to do with sin, that they no longer feel worthy and so they stop coming to church because they don't like the feeling of guilt that they sense when they're there. And the third reason is that they're offended in some way. And not as long as they're at church, I don't want to be there myself. Now, there may be other reasons, but I've seen throughout a long time of working with people that are struggling that often it does boil down to one of those three things. But then it hit me once, years ago, that each of those three struggles is actually rooted in a crisis of the three cardinal Christian virtues. If I feel like I've lost my testimony, if I'm struggling with doctrinal doubts or concerns over historical issues in the church, that is simply a crisis of faith. If I'm wrestling with sin and don't seem to be able to overcome addiction or whatever it might be, then that is simply a crisis of hope. For what is it that we should hope for? Hope through the atonement of Jesus Christ that we can be raised unto life eternal. And if I'm struggling with offense, then I'm simply having a crisis of charity for charity suffereth long and is kind. We all have our ups and downs physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually. 
but I testify that crises of faith or of hope or of charity can all be overcome through the all-sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. He's not just a good thing to lay hold on. He is the best of things. And it's through him that every other good gift can become ours. I testify that what Mormon taught here is true and is meant for such a time as this. If your faith is faltering, if your hope is hanging by a thread, if charity is hard to muster, then come unto Jesus. If you have sufficient faith in Christ's sufficient grace, then you will have sufficient hope that he's going to bring you home. And as a result, how can you not have charity? Christ is charity, and he never faileth.